Aloha and welcome to HMA Connect, the new podcast program of the Hawaii Medical Association. Established in 1856, HMA is dedicated to serving physicians, their patients, and the community. Today's podcast is an interview with Mr. Gene Ransom, CEO of the Maryland State Medical Society, or MedCai. As the largest physician organization in Maryland, MedCai's mission is to serve as the foremost advocate for physicians, their patients, and the public health of Maryland. Mr. Ransom graduated cum laude from the University of Maryland in 1993 and received his law degree from the University of Baltimore in 1996. From 2002 to 2010, he served as an elected commissioner in Queen Anne's County, Maryland, where he served both as president and vice president of the commission. He was instrumental in securing passage of legislation to improve growth management, health, and environmental policy. Gene currently serves on the Maryland Primary Care Advisory Board and the Maryland Advisory Council on the implementation of population-based and patient-centered payment systems. Thank you very much, Gene, for making time to have a conversation today here in Austin, Texas at the AMSI meeting. Thanks for having me. It's great to get a chance to sit down with you. Always have appreciated our conversation, but it's really nice to get you on this podcast. So as we begin, Gene, would you share a little bit about yourself and what you do, how long you've been you know, at MedCai? So I've been with MedCai, for, and for your listeners, MedCai is the Maryland State Medical Society. We're the State Medical Society with a funny name. Everybody else, you hear their name and you know who they are. With us, we have a weird name. The reason is, is because we're actually the medical and chirological faculty of Maryland. We were formed in 1799, and we're the seventh oldest medical society in the United States. I've been the CEO now for about 16 years, and I've worked for them for 26 years. The first 10 years I worked there, I was a lawyer for them and did some other things. I was in elected office and did some stuff. And then about 10 years ago, I decided to stop running, or well, about 16 years ago now, I guess, I decided to stop running for office and and focus on the medical society, and they made me CEO, and, and that's the rest. That's who I am. Well, I mean, what an incredible history, and the changes that you must have seen over the years, I mean, not only in Maryland, but throughout the country. Yeah, the, the change in medicine has been incredible. So when I was a young lawyer working for MedCai, I kind of started working on a specific grant, but at once I went to the general counsel's office and worked for another lawyer, we were doing things like helping doctors unwind from hospitals, doing things like helping doctors with their private practice issues. And, and in the 90s, you know, 70, 80% of physicians were in private practice. And now it's the exact opposite. The majority are employed. The legal questions that we see are about you know, someone's contract and clauses in their contract and employment issues and issues with the hospital bylaws or administration. It's very different from what I dealt with at the beginning. And obviously my role has changed. Uh, but the, the, the mission has stayed the same, and the importance of the medical society to Maryland and the physicians has remained high. Well, you know, for Hawaii, the listeners to HMA Connect, our podcast program, are going to be physicians, healthcare professionals, but the community at large. Why are medical societies, and specifically state medical societies, still so important today for physicians and for the community? So our mission, the MedCai mission, is to be the foremost advocate for physicians, patients, and the public health of Maryland. We work on really important public health projects and, and policies. We're currently doing work preventing the opioid crisis from getting worse. 
Uh, we help the PDMP, Prescription Drug Monitoring Program. We do education and answer questions about helping uh, not only physicians do a better job when it comes to opioids, but also helping patients get access to treatment. We do work on value-based care that is really helpful to Medicare patients and having them get better care uh, and how they receive it. But we're really important to physicians because we are the first stopping point that you go to to get help on anything. Uh, we're the foremost advocate for them. We're their advocate. We're their resource. We're for their profession. So we're really important to them. And it doesn't matter whether a doctor works in an employed setting and they need help with their contract or they need help with uh, getting their CME credits. It doesn't matter if they're in private practice and they need help with running their business. Whatever it is, we try to provide that service for them. And the state societies are the most important by far because most regulation and laws around healthcare is actually done at the state, which is a little counterintuitive. A lot of people think, oh, the federal government, Medicare, Medicaid. But the reality of it is, is that most rules and regulations on insurance are done at the state level. Medicaid spending is actually comes from the federal government and then the state decides how it gets spent. So a lot of those decisions are made at the state level. And the Hawaii system is so different from the Maryland system. Right. I wouldn't be able to tell you or the national organizations wouldn't be able to say how Hawaii works. They need the Hawaii Medical Society because you guys are so unique. And we're really unique too. We have a rate setting system in Maryland that no other state has. And every state's a little different. So I think we're really important not only to physicians and patients, but to public health generally in the systems that we work in. Sometimes I hear from physicians that HMA does all this advocacy work, whether we belong to HMA or not. We try to say yes, but the more physicians are involved, the more they can influence exactly what the priorities and the agenda of HMA is, and also the more power HMA, more influence potentially HMA can have with legislators. Do you want to comment on like, how you persuade physicians to join in this day and age when so many are employed? This is a problem that has been around in any kind of association or organization like this as long as I've been involved. And I remember I was an economics major in undergrad before I went to law school. They call it the free rider program. When somebody gets the benefit of some product or service without paying for it, and it creates externalities or, or, or issues. So this is something that if I had the silver bullet or the answer to, I could be a very wealthy man. It's kind of like we provide all these great things and they are beneficiaries of them without being it. Somehow, I think the real trick that I have found that works is convincing them that they owe it to their profession. They have a professional responsibility to be part of it. And I think what you said is absolutely right, that we are stronger when we are bigger and we have more influence. And sometimes I've seen in the time that I've been involved, our membership, for example, goes way up when we have a tort crisis, mm. or it goes way up when there's a big event because they all really see the value and understand it. Actually, our membership went up significantly during COVID because we were providing all this con education, calls from the state health department with up-to-date clinical information on COVID, but also helping them with their uh, employment relief um, type programs, funding, getting money for their practices to keep them open. So we were so relevant. And that's what you have to do when you have an opportunity to really shine, you show them. But I don't think we're ever going to avoid the free rider program. It's a, it's a problem. It's just a problem I think we have to deal with. Right. And we have to communicate better mm -hmm. why we're impactful, why we're important, and, and, and what we, the value add is. And we have to rely on doctors doing the right thing and knowing that they're benefiting from the work we've done. For example, last year in our General Assembly session, we got Medicaid rates raised to Medicare. So that's the perfect example. For Medicare doctors, for half of the people who take Medicaid in Maryland, uh, they're not members of MedCAI. 
But the increase that we can lobby for and got in the General Assembly literally is going to put about $20,000 in new revenue into each one of those physicians' practices. The ones who are members got the same benefit of the ones who are not. But we can't separate it out, obviously. Right. It's, it ha- every year there's an example where you see that happen. And we just have to remind them that without us, it would be a lot worse and they'd be worse off. And I hope they do the right thing. And the public must be very grateful if they knew the benefit that you really yielded for them because of your efforts. Well, the big thing on the Medicaid issue, for example, going back to that one, you might say, well, oh my goodness, they got rates up for physicians. Well, that's what a trade association would do. But the big deal about getting Medicaid rates up is more doctors take Medicaid then. There's more access for poor people. They don't end up in emergency rooms. Actually, that's one where I feel very good about what I'm doing because we are making Maryland a better place. In Maryland, we're down to only 6% uninsured. We're not quite to Hawaii levels, but we're getting there. We're close. We're in the top 10 uh, for, for people who have uh, insurance. Um, but when you do things like raise Medicaid, that increases access and increases the people who don't have insurance who are poor, the ability to see a doctor, exactly. which is huge. Right, yeah. And so that way you're supporting the physicians, the patients, and you're impacting public health in a very positive way. As you look at the changing landscape, say, you know, the next 10 years, and I know it's always dangerous mm-hmm. to predict the future, mm-hmm. what do you see changing in terms of medical societies, how they're operating, their priorities? So I think the biggest change is going to be the nature of physicians. As I talked about how we moved to employment, now really, if you think about it, where back in the 80s and 90s, we were really almost like a mini chamber of commerce for a bunch of small business people. Now I think what we've moved to is we are a mix where we are providing services to a bunch of physicians who are employed and a bunch of physicians who are still in private practice and still like small businesses. I think as time goes on, the the private practice part is going to get smaller and smaller, the employed is going to get bigger, and the employed is going to split into different types of employment. If you think about it, we have doctors who are employed by hedge funds, large corporate entities, then we have doctors who are employed by hospitals. And I think those needs are going to separate more and more, and we're going to end up having to really provide a series of services that are different depending on where the doctor works. And I think medical societies are going to have to be really adaptive to figure out how we do that going forward and how we're relevant to all three types, or we run the risk of getting smaller and having less resources to do our job. When you share like this, I think about leadership training for our physicians going forward. You know, a lot of times we hear the expression physician leaders. What are you doing and what do you think we need to do more of as a community of medical societies in preparing physicians for even greater and more challenging leadership roles? One of the things I think that, so if you think about a physician in their training, first of all, these are some of the smartest people that we have in the world, right? If you, if you want to be a physician, you better be really smart. Then secondly, you spent all four of your, year, your years in undergrad learning a lot of science, right? So you don't take a lot of law, you don't take a lot of business, you don't take a lot of leadership courses because you're very focused on getting to medical school. Then in medical school, you learn how to be a doctor. And then you go to residency and you start practicing your profession. So by the time you're done everything, you're in your late 20s, you owe a lot of money, and you haven't had any business or law or leadership type courses or very little. And I think that's a, a real shortage in medical training. I think that's the perfect gap for us to fill as the medical society. At different times, uh, MedKai has done training around basic law and medicine, around basic business and medicine, and around leadership. And other organizations like the AMA, Physician uh, Advocacy Institute, and others have also done, uh, the Physicians Foundation has also done leadership training, which is all good stuff and something we need to do. But I, I think we really need to look at those gaps and figure out how we can fill them. 
because physicians more and more, whether they're employed or in private practice, need those skills so they can be more valuable to their employees and they have more options on what they want to do. I think that's a perfect place for us to be looking and moving into in an intelligent way. It's a gap that needs to be filled. I do think that medicine needs to think about how they're training physicians and thinking about some of these issues and make adjustments on a global scale. But those changes seem to happen very slowly that I've learned at the time I've worked for them. So in the meantime, I think we're the right place to help them fill those gaps. You've been, I think, president of AMSI. Could you share a little bit about AMSI, what it is? Yeah, so AMSI is the American Association of Medical Society Execs. It's people like you and me and county medical societies and specialty societies. I, it's got hundreds, maybe even thousands of members across the country. You'd be surprised how many different medical societies and organizations there are. I got involved in it, I want to say 15 years or so ago, maybe a little longer, uh, right a little before I became the CEO of Maryland. And the, it really is great to talk to your colleagues and friends and start to learn from them. And it's just an incredible networking experience. I was president of AMC, which was, I'm somewhat of a, a, a president by error. The person who was in line to be president or was about to be president left the society she was working at and they needed someone to kind of slide into the track. And I was asked by some colleagues if I would be willing to do it and I said yes. And so I'm kind of the accidental president. I really enjoyed my time. Um, during the time that I was involved, I was treasurer, then president-elect, president, past president. Uh, we got the budget straight and we put money into reserves and really I was working on just kind of nuts and bolts of running the organization. But really what it does is it trains people like you and I and creates opportunities for us to network so we can learn from each other and do a better job running our societies. It's a great organization. Yeah, and this is the first meeting since, what, 2019? Yes. And what has changed since then what, in terms of like the spirit here? It's my first time yeah. attending. It's a wonderful, welcoming environment. The city of Austin welcomed us so nicely. Yeah. Great spirit and energy. Yeah. I think the one thing you'll notice is that, you know, a lot of people, when I tell somebody, oh, I run the medical society, they don't really understand what that job is. And actually, every state is a little different. I mean, at MedKai, for example, we own an insurance agency, we own a rehab center, uh, we have a CTO. So all of us have, a, we, we might all have similar titles, but we all have a little bit different jobs. I mean, we all lobby and do continuing education, but we all do different things. It is so helpful to have colleagues who understand kind of what we do, what we deal with, working with physicians and how it works. And that's what I love about this organization. I think the one thing I've seen that has changed is I can tell that a lot of organizations were really stressed by COVID. It really hurt them. It hurt them financially. It made them hard to run. And I don't think it's just medical societies. I think a lot of nonprofits felt this. And I think, you know, we're all nonprofits, obviously. I think nonprofits are really in part of our infrastructure. They help fill a lot of gaps in society that the government doesn't fill or others don't fill. I think it's something that maybe we haven't talked about or learned about how bad the pandemic was on that and how much we've lost because those services get lost. So I think that's the one thing I'm taking away from it. The attendance is a little lighter than prior years, so I'm hoping we can get it back up and go from there. But uh, it's a great group and it's, it's, a, it's a great organization. When I first came on board, you know, I connected with uh, Dan Eller at the uh -huh. American Medical Association, our field rep, and I talked to him about, okay, who are the resources, the people that I need to connect with to learn, because this is a whole different field for me. And your name was one of the first names that came up. And I enjoyed our first interaction, I mean, just filled with energy. And then today, I was kind of watching you go around the different exhibitors, but talk with people. And you're always like this, this sponge for new ideas and learning new things, which I think is 
very inspiring. And even your talk last night, you shared really the top 10 things that, you know, if you're in charge of a medical society, you know, you really have to pay attention to. But I think a lot of what you shared really applies to any nonprofit situation. I'm curious, would you share for especially younger leaders and, you know, our physician leaders, but, you know, other healthcare professionals, anyone working out there in the field, what are the three things a leader really needs to pay attention to today? I went through 10 yesterday, obviously, and I, I, and I don't know. I, I kind of numbered them. I don't know that they'd be in the level of importance that they, were, that they were. I would say the three things I think that are most important when you're running a nonprofit, in my mind, are the mission of the nonprofit and is what you're doing or what you're working on aligned with the mission, the brand of the nonprofit, and as I said, you as an individual. Every one of us have a brand. We have a, an image of who we are. Our organization has a brand. You need to protect that. It is gold. It is the most important thing. When MedKai approves an education, that means something. When we have a continuing med medical education course or something, it has meaning and it has value. When we agree to do something or we work on something, it has meaning, so you want to protect that brand. And then the third thing is, is when you're running a nonprofit, you have to watch the money. The money is so important, you have to pay attention to it. If you're in charge particularly, but I would argue anybody who works there, because you gotta make sure that you're bringing in enough money to accomplish the mission. And if you don't pay attention to the money, the mission will fail. So those were the three things that I think are probably the most important takeaways when it comes to running that. Now, there were others on the list, and there are others I didn't have on the list that as I thought about, maybe I should. But you know, we all learn things over the course of time. No, but those are three great ones, mm -hmm. and I think they are applicable to mm -hmm. anyone running any kind of organization, especially a nonprofit. You know, as you look back on your really extensive career in life, mm -hmm. I like to ask people, with your kind of vantage point of mm -hmm. wisdom and experience, what would you tell your younger self? I actually have very few complaints. I've, I've had, it's funny, we all have an idea of how things are going to work with life, right? So when I was in law school, my plan was I was going to clerk for a judge and become a lawyer and practice law. Of course, being a little dumb and arrogant, I only applied for two judge clerkships thinking, oh, I have to get one of the two because I'm so damn smart and perfect, I'll get them. And of course, I didn't get either one. So I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what to do. So I took a grant job at the medical society and it ended up being my home. And I ended up working there for the next 25 years, or now 26. And while I did that, especially in the beginning, they gave me lots of latitude. They couldn't pay me what I could make in other things, so they let me practice law a little on the side and let me be involved in politics. And I got to be elected. I was a county commissioner for two terms, which was great. And so I've had all these great experiences, and I think a lot of it was is because I'm open to it. I'll try things. And when things don't work out, you don't get upset. It's okay to get upset a little bit, but you don't get upset in the long run. You have to go, wait a second, something didn't work out the way you want it to, but it creates an opportunity. And you learn from everything you do, and you just kind of go with the flow. I love the fact that I've been working on really important healthcare stuff. Uh, when I was a county commissioner in my county, we built the first emergency room when I was president of the commission. We did not have a hospital or an emergency room. We built that when I was there. I'm very proud of that. At MedKai, we have worked on all kinds of amazing things. We passed one of the most innovative value-based care bills in the country just last year. We um, have done incredible things in value-based care, including we owned ACOs, and we have this cool transitional care organization. I've gotten to work on Medicaid policy for the last 15 years at a level that most people would never get to do. I get to do really cool stuff and make our healthcare system better, and I think that's neat. So I'm a lucky guy, and I have no complaints. But if you would ask me at 25, are you going to do healthcare stuff? I'd be like, I don't even really care about healthcare that much. And now I can't imagine my life without it being in it. So just be open-minded, and things work out the way they should. That was great words of wisdom.
in your copious free time, what do you do for recreation? So the, one, the one thing I've done, and my son got me doing this, my son and my daughter are both swimmers. My son swam high school all four years, and my daughter swims clubs. She's younger. She's going to high school next year. Uh, and actually, I learned how to do a flip turn at 45. So don't let anybody say that you, new, an old dog can't learn new tricks. It's not true. But I swim every day. I I'm not even sure what a flip turn no, is. No, it's when at the end of the lane you oh, flip. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So okay. I learned, right. the way I, I grew up on the eastern shore of Maryland, the way I learned how to swim was my dad took me out of a rowboat and threw me in the creek. And I kind of learned, but it was a rough doggy paddle. But my kids were actually good at it and did it for real. And so they taught me how to swim when I was a little older. And now for the last two or three years, every morning I swim, I go to the club and swim laps or I swim in the pool out in the back, depending on the weather. But it's so calming. It, I clear my head. I usually look at my calendar ahead of time and I work through it. So that's a big thing. I still am actively involved in politics. I always am campaigning or helping people campaign in my free time. I enjoy that. I think it's important to help good people who want to be public servants. So that's another fun thing I do. And number one by far are my kids. Theo and Claire are so important to me in my life. They're wonderful. That's who I am when I'm not here. Well, it sounds like a lot. And I have to ask you, because you're from Maryland, mm -hmm. but you're wearing this shirt that has Texas on it uh -huh. and has it looks like some kind of logo on it. Oh, it's, oh my son, my son uh, is going to be a Longhorn. So we happen to be in Austin, and this is where he'll be going to college. I'll be back here in a few weeks to take him down. He's going to be a freshman at the University of Texas. My son, since the time he was three, has wanted to be a paleontologist. It has never changed. We took him on dinosaur digs. In fact, the two of us have gone out to North Dakota the last couple summers and gone on real dinosaur digs with real paleontologists. And he loves it. He has forever. So he said he was going to Texas because Texas has the number one geology program in the country. And uh, I'm wearing it to represent my pride in my son. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Okay. You know, Gene, your energy from the first time we spoke mm -hmm. until now has never changed. And your sense of curiosity. Mm -hmm. We're so fortunate to have leaders like you around. And your willingness, uh, yesterday you offered your cell phone number to everyone. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, you're one of the few people I call and you just like always answer. Mm -hmm. Well, it's part of the trick is you want to get back to people because they can help you. One day you <laughs> might be calling me, the next day I might be calling you for something, you know? Only when you're in Hawaii in November. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. I know you're a great addition to the team. It's, uh, it's interesting because all the execs, and you've gotten to meet all 50 of us now pretty much in the time you've been on, you see we're all very different with different experiences and personalities. And that, the point is, is that it creates incredible value. And I can see the value you've brought to Hawaii. I mean, it's exciting to see that. I mean, you, there was a risk that Hawaii Medical Association wouldn't be there if it weren't for you. And that's cool that you've stepped up and hopefully we're going to turn this thing around and, and make it big and great again. You know, thank you very much. And we have a great board to help do that. And yeah. then I appreciate mentors like yourself. So thank you. Well, I think more like colleagues, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't mind saying <laughs> I learned a lot. Thank you so much, right. Gene, for, Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to HMA Connect. To learn more about the Hawaii Medical Association and future podcasts, please visit hawaiimedicalassociation.org.